Hi friends, this is Pastor Laura from Potomac United Methodist Church in Potomac, Maryland. And this is our sixth podcast. It's called A Pebble. You're not getting leftovers this week. I'm actually gonna preach this same story on Sunday morning for this All Saints Day, because it's a story that I wrote just a few years after my younger brother died of a brain tumor. And it just feels like I wanna honor him this week. I wanna begin really today by saying thank you. Over the last six weeks, we've had more than 200 listeners join us for the podcast as far away as England and Alaska and Mexico and about 15 other states. Marjorie All, if you are listening today, I, I want to say to you, I could never forget you. You and Matthew and all of your family stay very close in my prayers. And I think of you often. But that's the way of being a pastor. If you have sat in the pew of a church that I have served, I remember you and I am honored to have been your pastor. That's the joy of ministry. Some of you are my friends. Some of you have known me from the beginning of my life because I know that my Aunt Dana and my cousins, Beth Ann and Andy, listen to this podcast. And I'm just so delighted to think that you might want to listen to something I have to say. For all of you who have no idea who I am, I welcome you into my heart and into what I hope is my authenticity. I want to warn you that there will be some profanity in the story today. You need to know about me that profanity has been a part of my life and my vocabulary for as long as I can remember. My dad was a cusser. He cussed when he was happy, he cussed when he was angry, he cussed when he told jokes. It was uh, my mom's intent that she would remove that blessing from my brothers and I. I can remember a time when she instituted the idea that we could only say gosh or golly if we got angry and wanted to say something. Well, anyway, it didn't stick with me. It has been one of my greatest uh, curses, maybe. I'm okay with it. Turns out some people in the pew haven't been okay with it. I will monitor and delete some of the most profound curses from this story when I preach this on Sunday morning. But I'm committed to being authentic on this podcast. So you're getting the rawness of me. And I just wanted to give you a warning. Anyway, thanks for stopping in to spend the next 15 minutes with me. The story this week is called A Pebble. He was a pebble in my shoe and I a thorn in his side. Four years my junior, my brother is still never far from my mind. We were close as I remember until he attained the age of reason, which as I remember it was when he turned eight. That was when his world view became his own and he no longer felt the need to do what I said he should do. Somehow we got stunted there in our growth as siblings 
even as we grew older, attained careers, spouses, children, success, it didn't take much of anything to get caught in the vortex of our childhood. We didn't need to be told by our families, though our families tried to tell us how badly we behaved with one another. We knew. We knew because all of a sudden he was eight and I was 12. I might just say here that I don't think we were alone in our sibling wars. I mean, it happens. Life just happens between brothers and sisters in ways that are difficult for us to talk about. Our brothers and sisters share the whole of our lives. They know us and we know them from the very beginning. I think there's something in that knowing which made it so important for the gospel writer of John to begin with this thought. He wrote, in the beginning there was God and Christ was with him from the beginning, which is another way of saying we knew each other all along. The words that ripped us from our lifetime of fussing were these. The tumor in your brain is inoperable and incurable. For months, we had been denying that any such diagnosis might be spoken. It was simply a seizure on the golf course. Second only to his family, my brother loved to play golf. He was good. He played with a negative handicap and was the nicest guy you could ever want to meet. He had a way of making people feel like they were the most important thing he was doing when he engaged you in conversation. His deep brown eyes were always dancing with the resonance of his voice and his easy, deep laugh. His career was in sales and managing health insurance for large corporations. He could have sold you anything he set his mind to sell, but he tempered his ambition by selling something he believed in. He never sold more than a company needed. He tried to make sure employees were well covered. Financially, he was very successful. He had a family he adored, an amazing wife, and two kids that swelled him with pride. There was always room at my brother's table. He hosted the family Thanksgiving every year with no fewer than three turkeys for no more than a dozen diners. But that was my little brother, boisterously in love with life. You know, I'm a pastor, and the church could make my brother nuts. I'd be sharing a story in his presence about a wounding experience with a parishioner or the meanness of a meeting I'd had to endure, and he would seethe. Why in the hell do you put up with that? Damn it, go into business. Be a CEO, at least you'd have money. I took umbrage at his attitude. People need Jesus, I would reply indignantly at the idea that I was wasting my life leading in the church. Well, Jesus doesn't need people like that, he would retort. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. You're an idiot. I know you are. But what am I? He didn't have a place for God in his life. I don't say that with judgment, just truth. He was so successful that he did not have a need for a being greater than himself. The brain tumor interrupted everything in our lives, including my faith. It was a seizure on the golf course that he would later describe as moments that overwhelmed his olfactory senses. He could smell 
colors, the green grass, the blue sky, the yellow pencil in his hand, but he couldn't think how to fill out the golf cart or remember the names of his friends. So he went by ambulance to the local hospital and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. The symptoms abated and he went home. About the time he was feeling more like himself, back to work and golf, laughing more readily, teasing my children, cheering up our parents, a small shadow appeared on a brain scan. A new doctor, more tests, a diagnosis. Sometimes a brain tumor begins someplace else in the body. Cancer cells break away and form tumors in the brain. Breast cancer in the brain, lung cancer in the brain. But when the brain cells are the wild ones, replicating without anyone's permission or knowledge, it's called glioblastoma. My brother sat in my living room in the hours after the doctor gave them the news. Don't you dare count me out. I'm going to be the case they write books about, he said. Hey, I responded, I'll always bet on you. If anyone can prove the doctor's wrong, it will be you. You're a pain in my ass, he retorted. I know you are, but what am I? One day he called and told me he didn't know how to pray. I counted up the number of days left in that cycle for the experimental chemo, and I made him little cards with a word on top of a picture, silly pictures, hopeful words. I told him to pick a word every day out of the envelope and just pray the one word. A few weeks later at his house, I saw that he had taped the words all over the house, and neither of us said a word about it. I claim my role as a prayer warrior by which I mean I take seriously every opportunity I have to intercede to God about an earthly situation. I knew it was by no means an accident that I knew somebody who knew someone who could make the arrangements to get my brother admitted to one of the top hospitals in the United States. It was no coincidence that there was a team at that hospital researching the very form of cancer he had, nor that they welcome him into the trials for the drug therapy. God's interference was all over the place. And I took credit for it. I took credit for my prayer prowess. And I believed with every member of my family that he would not die, not because of this tumor, not on my watch. I prayed all the time. I prayed at church, in the car, in the shower. I prayed alone with my friends, my children, his children, my parents. I prayed until I reached the place of knowing that even without words, the Holy Spirit would intercede with God on my behalf. One night I was called home from a clergy women's conference in Pennsylvania. Earlier in the evening he had seized and they called the ambulance. His fever rose to more than 104 degrees and they didn't know why. So being a clergywoman has its privileges. I can look like I belong in a neurological ICU at two o'clock in the morning. I stood by his bedside, pressing cold compresses to his intubated face. And for the first time that night, I worried that he might die. I bowed my head and then straight up to the ceiling, I took God to the woodshed. No holes barred. And God took it. What the hell is this? I cried. Do something, I begged. I work my 
nuts off for you. And it's been a long time since I asked you for anything for myself. But I'm asking you now, save him. The next morning when the fever broke, I was still there. He opened his eyes, blinked twice, and squeezed my hand. And I gave God the glory all the way home and well into the next day. But turns out the tumor was growing and stretching, inoperable and incurable. I turned to books to try to figure out what I was doing wrong. Do you know that feeling? Like it's worked before and now I can't figure out how to get back into the sweet spot of prayer. And everyone was counting on me. And I was counting on God for what I was beginning to see needed to be a miracle. I sat on the floor at Barnes & Noble in front of the shelf marked prayer. I was looking for honest speak, not theological mumbo-jumbo. I wanted to read that someone wrote, Shit happens. Prayer can help you endure the shit, but faith will not prevent the shit. I wanted to see words on a page like, Damn it! My sister died of breast cancer, and I can't get up in the morning because my healthy breasts make me feel like I let her down. Instead, all the books were like, Hope to find peace when a loved one dies, and 20 affirmations to face the loss. I collected a big pile of books on the floor next to me without realizing it until a clerk came and suggested I was making a scene with all my weeping and cussing. I've known miracles, I want to be clear. I've been in hospital rooms where we were sure that death was the next visitor. I've stood in intensive care units, praying with folks in deep comas who were counted out in a newborn nursery, baptizing a baby small enough to fit in the palm of my hand that no one thought would live for the next 10 hours. I can't put a number on the stories of wonder praise and miracles, life given back, hope restored, faith regained. I thought it was all about my praying prowess. But turns out I was wrong. Turns out you can pray your heart out on the bathroom floor and your little brother can still die. Well, shit. It was all sinking in. Jeffrey called me one day out of the blue and he said, look, I don't want to be one of those guys who stays mad at God. I'm standing in my backyard and I'm thinking how beautiful everything is and that I have this amazing life. I don't want to give it up, but I don't want to spend the time I have left being mad. I don't know where to start, Lar. I don't really even know the guy. Can you help me? And in that moment, he was 46 and I was 50. And I told him the story of the prodigal son. You remember the kid who left home to find fame and fortune only to discover that there is no place like home? It's the story that came to my mind because my brothers and I had a dad like that father in the story. It's the story that came to my mind because while my brother was an amazing man, he had never been close to God. So, I said, the son who'd been gone for so long came around the corner and found his dad waiting for him with open arms. I could hear the quiver in his voice when he whispered, Well, I hurried on 
And if that were our dad, what do you suppose he would say to you? And my brother started to cry and I started to cry. And he said, he'd say, welcome home, son. And I responded, he surely would. So how much more so, God? When he finally caught his breath, he asked, are you sure about this? I am. And then we hung up and we never spoke of it again. Over the next seven months, he lost his ability to speak before he lost his desire to communicate. He had demanded from me the truth. He made me promise to tell him the truth, even when it sucked. And in those months when his words were leaving him, he demanded the truth by the flickers of in his eyes, even when everybody who loved him begged me not to tell him how the disease was progressing. In one of our final conversations before speech was completely gone, I was teasing him into repeating my words. He was slow and methodical. He echoed, you are the best. And when he paused, I filled in the words, sister in the world. He laughed deeply and then shouted, preacher. I called him a brat, then I laid my head on his broad chest and sobbed. My little brother has been hanging out with God in the kingdom for 12 years. He was a pebble in my shoe, and I was a thorn in his side. But oh, what I'd give for a chance to walk again with that impediment. Turns out this is what I know. If my whole life in ministry was meant so that I could bring my little brother to a faith in Christ before he made the trip, it would all have been worth it. In the end, you see, my prayer was answered. My brother was saved. Have a great week. See you next time.